Electrocast. And I was also seeing a lot of international investment in the entertainment industry as a form of like soft power building. So I was seeing all this stuff and I was I was building up kind of like my theory of how much power is really vested in entertainment and in the structures of the industry itself and how does that reinforce a culture of silence and enablement. Before even the Me Too revelations had come out, I was already kind of questioning what the moral position of the entertainment industry is in American society and in American politics. Okay, it basically comes down to this. You have to forget everything your culture has told you about being a woman, and then you can begin your day. Hi, I'm Jill Sorensen, and you are listening to the new feminist podcast, The Place for Common Sense Feminism. I'm very excited about today's episode. I was finally able to convince my amazing producer of the new feminist podcast, Sienna Jackson, to let me interview her. She is a force to be reckoned with. She started college at 14 became an intern at the Weinstein Company at 17, and then at the ripe old age of 21, she was already the director of the company's film and television music department. Committed to making the world a better place, today she is the founder and CEO of Zoran Creative Strategy, a consultancy firm that helps brands and organizations with social impact. We discuss common sense feminism and what it feels like when a massive social movement against sexual abuse started because of your boss. Well, Sienna, I'm so happy I finally could convince you to let me speak to you. It has been a long journey to this moment. (laughs) It sure is. (laughs) All right, so let's start at the beginning. I want to learn everything about you. Like, where did you grow up? Your parents, your family life? I want to understand what brought you then to already start college at 14. There must have been something in your upbringing. (laughs) Well, it wasn't such an unusual story, or at least it doesn't feel like that to me. Um, I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. So my, my family all work in the entertainment industry. Everyone's, you know, creative. Um, and when I was very young, about three days into first grade, I think my mom realized that traditional schooling wasn't really working for me. So I was homeschooled basically from that point onward. And it was great because I had a lot of flexibility all throughout my childhood just to kind of pursue things that I was interested in on my own terms. And that was really important because I think it instilled in me and my two sisters because I'm the oldest of three girls. Wait, were they um, homeschooled too? Yeah, everyone homeschooled. By your mom? Uh, yeah. Wow. For me, especially, I was, I was very much self-led in my studies. So, you know, for me, it, was, it instilled a sense of being competent and capable of controlling my own life and, you know, directing what my priorities were. So, you know, growing up, I spent a lot of time pursuing STEM. I was pursuing writing. And then by the time I was like 12, 13, I was at a college age reading level. And I actually took a break from school. Yeah, I took a break from school to work as a stage manager um, at an independent Shakespeare company in Silver Lake. So I was also really interested in in Shakespeare and theater and the performing arts. Wait, so you um, took a break from studies when you were 12 and you were already doing college material or? Yeah, so it was just, you know, my level of academic preparedness was already there. I, and I think that has to do with, you know, I didn't have to worry about standardized testing. I could go at my own pace, but my pace was pretty accelerated. So when I was working in theater, I was very tall for my age also. So no one knew that I was a little girl. (laughs) So my mom would like pull up to the theater in the minivan and drop me off and I would work. And no one knew I was like a 12 year old unless I told them they thought I was probably like late teens, if anything. But that experience showed my mom that I was socially prepared for college, not just academically prepared, and I could hold my own. You're totally an old soul, for yeah, sure. Very much so, yes, yes, very I, much so. <laughs> um, so I started college, yeah, fourteen, and it wasn't like a, a, a really crazy thing because it was, you know, it was community college. It was Pierce College in Woodland Hills. 
I was a journalism mm-hmm. major. I was in the honors program. I was also, I think, minoring in political science. So, you know, the way it would go is my mom would, again, drive me up in the minivan, drop me off. And, you know, I had my debit card. I had my cell phone. I was kind of managing my own course of study. So I basically treated that first college experience as equivalent to a high school experience. Although the work that I was doing was, you know, more challenging and I got to explore what being a journalist might be like because I I was writing for the school paper and I was covering a lot of serious issues. I covered the Arab Spring as that was going on. I, I covered the killing of Osama bin Laden um, you know, public finance scandals. I even covered uh, a cold case uh, surrounding the murder of one of my classmates, actually. So I was doing like serious reporting. And for, for a minute there, I thought, oh, this is going to be my career. I'm really interested in international relations. That's what I'm going to do with my life. But then when I was 17 years old, so at the tail end of getting my first degree, um, I got an internship in the music department at the Weinstein Company. Um, of all places when, and, you know, entertainment had never been the plan. Yeah. Um, just turned 17. And that was an interesting pivot in my life because up to that point, even though my family were all in entertainment, I thought I was going to be the lone wolf that would not do that. But then again, inevitably, you know, best laid plans, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. What do your parents do? Your My father's father, a director and producer in television. So he does like a lot of live TV, a lot of variety, a lot of different things. And my mother, before moving more into education, she's a real estate agent now, but she was a camera operator, uh, Chiron Graphics. She did graphic design. She did animation. So just both of my parents are like... Ah, now it's all coming yeah, together. Yeah, very self-determined sort of people. And they've had... Um, really interesting careers, kind of doing whatever they were interested in. My mom also at one point was a chef. She ran a charter school. Uh, She, like an accredited independent school that she founded really to give me and my sisters an apparatus for socialization. It was like several hundred families that she's helped over the years. And so even though I was homeschooled, they got like the full social experience that you would expect in a school environment, which was really cool. Um, but anyway, so I, I got this internship and, you know, my dad was a musician as well as being a director Mm -hmm. and producer in TV. Um, so I knew music and I really enjoyed music, but I didn't know what it meant to work in quote unquote, the music industry. So when I came to the Weinstein company, that company was so, (laughs) I mean, it's notorious now, but even, even And what year is this now? What year? This is like 2010. This is 2010. Um, the King's speech is still in post. Um, score hasn't been laid down. Yeah. So it was right before the company went on a major run of best picture nominations and wins. Right. So I came in just before King's speech, uh, won best picture. Did it win best picture or did it just get nominated? I think yes. It, it was, yes. And best actor. Right. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. So, I love one so of my was, favorite movies. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great film and it was great to look at, um, just coming in at the post end of the of the process, the post-production process. So the company had just had this huge round of layoffs, which it did every so often. So I don't think the company was ever more than 250 people maximum at any time. So they just, oh, barely a handful. So when I started interning there, it was the music department. There were only two people in the music department. It was uh, Beth Humphreys and Richard Glasser. And the office, which was in, you know, on the Miracle Mile, was empty, just like empty desks, empty offices. And I remember when I came to the music department, the music library, the music catalog, right? All the scores and original songs of our films was like in this horrible state of being 25 MP3s on like a Macintosh and boxes and boxes of contracts that gave information on music rights. So I kind of came in to this company that had a huge reputation creatively, but there was just no infrastructure. There, everything was paper records. Nothing had been digitized. The offices, there were multiple offices in different places. There was the one LA office, two New York offices. Nobody talked to each other. But Richard was really wonderful because he immediately took me under his wing as a mentor and was teaching me how to read these agreements, teaching me about music rights, 
he would loop me into email change. So I was on the all, you know, all the record labels have their invite lists for live shows. So I was on all the invite lists. So I got to shows. Um, every call he ever took, I was on the call listening and taking notes. And I, you know, I just so through the course got, of this like, an one amazing education yeah. at the same time. Yeah. yeah, I started to really learn the music business. And Richard's like old school. He was born in 1947 and he's worked with everybody. He knows everybody. Um, and just a really decent human being who was very generous and always kind of gave me the latitude to take on things that I was interested in. So I very quickly became very interested in the music library. And then he invited me on for a second internship, you know, back to back. And then he was like, well, you know, once you graduate or you go, you, you go to your next school, like, why don't you come work for me part time while you're going to get your next degree? And I was like, heck Yeah because this was 2011 at this point that I started working on a part-time basis. Wow, and so young, yeah. Yeah, it was funny because I would be, for my second degree, I was at Pepperdine studying communications and doing more journalism and things like that. And then I would just go to school one day, and then the next day I would go into the office, and then school the next day, and then following that I would go to the office and then go out to shows. So I was kind of juggling my... Probably having a blast. Having so much fun because, you know, it, it's these are not experiences that you usually have so young. But I was meeting really exciting people. I was learning this industry. I was going to see so much great live music. Like every night I would go out and be out to like three in the morning, just going to show like shows. Sometimes I'd go like to one venue in East L.A., and then go back to like Midtown or Hollywood and go to another show. So I do multiple things every single day. Wow. So this is during a time when Weinstein is larger than life. Like he is the god of, of the movie making world. So what, mm -hmm. when did you meet him the first time and what was that like? I think I met him the first time when I was like 20, I want to say. Here's how it was. There were two New York offices one for Bob Weinstein and one for Harvey Weinstein. And the understanding was they needed two separate spaces because they did not get along. So occasionally Harvey would come from his New York office to LA. And every time that happened, it was like, here, here he comes. Everyone would just like, you would, you would hide the food in the break room because he would inevitably come and find food and just start binge eating whatever food was out. So people really? would hide food, <laughs> hide the snacks. People would hide in their offices. Um, well, they would hide because they weird. were afraid of him? That, or why, why would they hide? It was a weird, it was a weird thing because he never, like, he, there was never any moment where it was like, oh, this dude's a scary dude. But he was very loud and very gruff. And he had this weird energy around him where people were just like, bend over backwards to... Kiss up to him, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, and, and, you know, you come in, he would have, you know, this squad of assistants because he had like five or six assistants at any given time and they would rotate in and out and that would, they were collectively HW office. So some of the assistants would come out to travel with him. So it, it would be like he was like this lumbering dude who would slowly walk down the hall and surrounded by like, a, these, like, like these very nervous it. assistants. Yeah. Oh my, and Ma male or female assistants? Uh, mostly, I mostly saw male or at least the ones that traveled with him. Um, but I never, me and Richard were always in kind of like our happy music corner and I really loved the work that I was doing. So there was a lot of siloing between different departments where people would not share information with each other or talk to each other. And then New York, to me, I, I'd never went to the New York office, so it just seemed like this weird castle on the other side of the country that I barely... <laughs> and anytime I interacted with people from the New York office, everyone just seemed so harried. Yeah, really? Oh, I bet. So, so what was your first meeting with him like? It would have been... You were yeah, still a teenager. I was about 20, and he had come to L.A. for a trip, one of his, one of his trips where everyone just, like, kind of girds their loins because he's coming. And he was staying at the Peninsula Hotel. And he summoned the music department for a breakfast meeting, like a morning meeting with Harvey, which was, like, unprecedented, or at least in my experience. And I'd been there now for, uh, you know, what was it, like, a, you know, three years at this point. And it was very nerve wracking because it's like, why does the boss of the studio want to meet our little department 
at that time, it was only three people. <laughs> and I was doing a lot of the day-to-day on all the creative and all the admin and everything to do with the catalog. Um, so we sat down, we're at the, we're at the dining hall, this private wing of the peninsula, um, where they do like different brunch meetings and whatever. So we're just like kind of waiting. I had taken, you know, I was like, I was prepared. I had my notes. I, you know, knew our numbers. I knew like how much the catalog was making because, you know, Richard and I had really built it into something very profitable for the country, for the company. And that company was always never, it was never the most financially stable, um, studio. So we were, we were feeling pretty good about what we were doing because we were consistently making money and we were consistently earning awards nominations. Um, so I'm really proud of what we had done. So I had all this ready and he comes in again with a bunch of assistants, sits down next to me and just starts like, yeah, he like overfills his coffee cup. And I remember like the, the coffee or the tea he was drinking, like spilling over the sides of the cup and onto the little like little plate, right? And then he starts like rapid fire, like, do you think you're smart? Like, what is this? What is that? Tell me these numbers. Tell me this. Blah, 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 blah. And because I was prepared and I was the one who usually handled a lot of the, the minutia of stuff, you know, I was ready with answers every single time. I was on my, I was like on my best game because, you know, for me, the way I looked at it was like, hey, I was thinking of working in international relations. I was thinking of working in State Department. I was thinking of doing all these other things. I work in entertainment, which is not a big deal comparatively to what I could have been doing with my life. So there's no reason to freak out. So I was just, so I was just like maintaining my chill as best as I could. And, you know, the meeting was a success. None of us got chewed out. And at the end of it, Harvey was like, you know, I want you to, me, Sienna, to report to him every week about music, like, which is a very vague ask. So what it culminated in is every week from that point forward, I was one of his direct reports and I would send him an email at the end of the week, kind of summarizing what we had accomplished that week, the department, like what are, you know, how had we been hitting our targets? And I would also include a section of that weekly report where it's like, I'm giving him music recommendations. I'm introducing him to new artists. I'm like, oh, here's artists that we should include in our films and our projects. And, you know, because I was very interested at that point in giving underrepresented talent an opportunity um, because we were working on really great soundtracks with talent all the time. And I wanted to see, you know, more diversity and things like that. So I, that was kind of my agenda. And, and, and when, when, was, he, when he asked you to be the one who he, he spoke to, you didn't feel any sense of ulterior motives? Oh, no. What was usually the, the way is that he would want people to report to him, I think, all over the company. Like, he always wanted information about what folks were doing. So I suspected that, and I think Richard felt the same way. But I never personally um, experienced anything Me Too-esque. And part of the reason for that might be because, you know, again, I, I credit Richard Glasser. His son was the COO of the company. We were, again, very much segregated from the day-to-day operations. Uh, yeah, we you know, never left L.A. But did you hear stories? Like, did would you ever hear stories about, Only or were about they silenced? Food? Yeah, no, no, no. Only about his food issues and about his temper. And looking back, I feel like the reason why people kind of relished in sharing their horror stories about his temper is because that was almost an easier thing to think about than everything else. So he, so, and, and it was also public where everyone could see him. So he would yeah. just rage. Would he just like suddenly rage at people? Well, you would hear, you would overhear like in the hallways, you would overhear him shouting in like the boardroom or you would hear him shouting on calls and he was just very aggressive and he had a way he would like neg people all the time and 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 really grind people down. And then again, anytime I talked to someone from the New York office, it always sounded like the most dire condition. Like you would just get you would just hear from people's stress. So people I was, probably I had PTSD really working in with someone like that. I mean yeah. yeah. I think it wears on you. But then again, that was so normalized. Like I can't stress enough. Like there's nothing that came out of the Me Too. Like, they, you can't even call them revelations because it's so ubiquitous in the culture of the entertainment industry. People 
you know, I have friends who, you know, would be assistants at talent agencies and, you know, an agent would throw a phone at a girl or scream or people date, you know, there's a lot of, you know, bedroom politics that happens and you would hear like awful gossip about everybody. Um, And, you know, drinking is a big problem, especially, you know, in music because you're going out, you're going to shows, you're hanging Mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. Um, so there, know, there are no boundaries, really. Basically, no boundaries and, and enabling uh, yeah. kind of well, abusive we behavior. Yeah, we have a culture, the old days of the studio system, where we kind of lionize and elevate truly despotic personalities because there's this false idea, I think, in people's minds that, you know, if you're a great man of consequence or genius or any sort of, like, profound importance that you must also be tortured and you must also have your vices and how we have to all let that slide because if we don't let it slide, then we're interrupting, you know, the process of genius. Um, So look at the way that, you know, Woody Allen has been coddled by our industry. Oh, yeah. Look at the way Yeah, exactly. And then Look at the way that Roman Polanski is coddled by our industry. Look at the way that any problem... By by the the way, I have a total Roman Polanski story, but we'll do that. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, you worked in... You were a model, so you know. One sentence only. Five five models on a shoot, and by the next morning... Yeah, he was there shooting a movie. He had cornered every single one of us and asked to sleep with him. And even oh showed up God. in my ho- knocking, you know, on the hotel room in the middle of the night, and 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 then the next morning his girlfriend showed up. Oh God! And yeah, and we like, we were probably eighteen, all of us, eighteen, yeah. nineteen. Yeah. So we so we live in a in a like the entertainment industry is very much a reflection of larger societal issues in American society and how we treat women, how we you know the sexualization of young girls, um, adultification, all these different macro issues. But the entertainment industry also plays a huge role in shaping culture, driving narratives. When we look at the standard of what is normal or acceptable behavior and how people treat each other, you know, we're co-creating our sense of propriety. We co-create our idea of what is normal and what is okay. And media, what we see in TV, what we see in film, what we see in a music video, helps reinforce our kind of preconceived notions of what is normal. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what's so dangerous. That's why it's so important to change it. It can be very Um, insidious. Um, so, So that was kind of part of what the problem was with Harvey, was that people enabled him and people kind of hand because he was just like a concert promoter from like Buffalo, New York. Like he was a hustler. He and his brother were hustlers. They did not come from money or from kind of any sort of inherited power. But because of kind of the grandiose persona that he created, kind of like this P.T. Barnum-esque tough guy attitude, people would never question him he didn't get told no, even in the context of like creative or business decisions, people kind of, you know, flinched away from even the thought of contradicting him. Um, And then a lot of very powerful people reinforced his own sense of being untouchable because people would do anything for him. And it wasn't just within the entertainment industry, it was outside of entertainment because he was very big in politics. He was very big in lobbying for different things. Um, so I, you know, as someone who was very interested in power dynamics, in international relations, in governance and all these different things, I was shocked by how much access I was getting to back channel conversations and the work that I was doing kind of drove home the point that the politics of the town in Los Angeles, in the, in the quote unquote, in the business, right, are not at all dissimilar to the politics of the town in Washington, D.C., And a lot of those actors and leverage holders communicate with each other very closely. Um, I also notice a lot of the international, my, you know, my international relations kind of acumen come into bear because, you know, I'd be learning Japanese for work. I'd be learning Mandarin for work, or I would like write a email in Mongolian Cyrillic for work. And I was also seeing a lot of international um, investment in the entertainment industry as a form of 
like soft power building. So I was seeing all this stuff and I was I was building up kind of like my theory of how much power is really vested in entertainment and in the structures of the industry itself. And how does that reinforce a culture of silence and enablement? Before even the Me Too revelations had come out, I was already kind of questioning what the moral position of the entertainment industry is in American society. Huge. And in American politics. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. And then 2017 happened and Mm -hmm. the stories came out and all of a sudden there was this whole other dimension. So so what happened? Take us through what when the whole scandal broke, what went through your mind? How did you find out, first of all, and what went through your mind? Oh yeah, I I remember this is now it's twenty twenty one now. This is twenty seventeen, right? So so it was a while ago, but I remember I, I went into the office and it seemed like a normal day. By this point, I had just, I, you know, I had wrapped my master's degree. I had been full-time now for maybe like a year. Yeah, maybe like a year. Um, and I'd never felt busier because we were, you know, we were gearing up for award season. We were always constantly positioning. And so I came into the office expecting a busy day and I came in and there was just a weird energy in the air like weird anticipation, weird sort of quiet. I remember sitting at my desk and opening my, my, my computer and Richard came over and he's like, there's, there's like going to be a big story in like the New York Times or in the New Yorker. And it's like a big story. It's about all this stuff that Harvey did. And I'm like, well, what, it, what do you mean stuff that he did? Like, what are you talking about? And he's like, like read the article. And so I read it. And it was just like, oh my God. And that's the I think one that with like Gwyneth Paltrow and all of those people. All of these right? people who, who had know, worked with him and you all thought had, well, yeah. People, not only people that worked with him, but people you would see at events that even to, you know, even as of recent. So I was like, I, I remember being really shocked that, first of all, there was this system that he had created to, perpet- to, to kind of like always supply himself with new victims and there were these levels of secrecy. And also because, I, again, I'd never been to the New York office. I never have even to this day um, hearing about like secret rooms that he had in the New York office and like just the conditions of that of that place and the things that he would do. Like, you know, he'd invite people to the peninsula and it's like, well, didn't people at the peninsula? It was just, it just, the more I read, the more I was like, well, wait, why, how, and why didn't people just take action sooner? Because again, at 2017, at this point, a lot of the key executives at the company were women. And so it was just, it, it was really baffling to me and shocking because I would, have, I would think that action would have been taken sooner. But then again, I shouldn't be surprised because it was just never culture of silence, and also when you have toxic leadership like that, then then it, there's backstabbing. And I, I mean, I would assume, yeah. right? A lot of intrigue, a lot of intrigue, a lot of secrecy. Yeah. And I think the one thing I really learned when it comes to just like how to really break an organization and to you know corral people into a dangerous position is when you silo, because again nobody talked to each other. I was like one of the few people at the company who would make a point to like reach out to other departments, even if they weren't necessarily necessary to my day-to-day work, just to have a sense of connection to other people (laughs) at the company. Because sometimes you would go in and not have a conversation with someone all day. Yeah. And it would just be me and Richard, again, in our own little music world, because by the time Me Too struck, it was just him and I. So yeah, it was like this crazy thing. But then immediately, you know, and I, I credit the team at the company who came together because, you know, a lot of those folks had been working together for, you know, the better part of a decade or more. The Harvey was immediately thrown out. The board was immediately stepping up. David Glasser immediately stepped up. You know, a lot of people pulled together. Everyone was checking in on each other. But the moment we threw him out of the company, um, it was like, a horror movie. And how long after that was that after the article? Like that weekend. Yeah, by that weekend, he was gone almost immediately. And as soon as he was gone, it was like a horror film. And what I mean by that is we started getting these mysterious emails, right, that seemed to come from people in the company, but didn't, asking where we were, asking if we could get on a call real quick asking this, that, and the other. Even I got emails like that. 
eventually the FBI comes to David Glasser and they're like, hey, we can't do anything for you until the threat is imminent, but you absolutely need armed security at your offices. And from, <laughs> from that point on, we had an armed, um, you know, like protection detail kind of guy in the lobby at our office in LA at all times. So essentially, and I think this came out uh, later, either in one of the Ronan Farrow follow-up pieces um, or maybe uh, one of the other reporters, um, Harvey had hired this firm of ex-Massad agents to attack attack his own employees and like what? go after the company. And so it was this crazy thing of, I would go into the office every day, you know, things and things really escalated very quickly from the moment those articles came out. You know, as we were sliding into the bankruptcy, I would come into the office every day, say hi to our armed security guard and like ask him about his service record and all these different things that he had done, like his crazy life story. And I'm thinking this feels like the plot of a movie and it's the worst movie. Maybe there's a, it's a movie to be written. <laughs> yeah. And like I'm 28 now. So I was like 24 then. So I was like oh, 24 and like God. navigating all this craziness and also ask myself, what does this mean for all of us, especially the women at the company who were really proud of the work we had done. And like, what is, what does any of this really mean long-term? And is, does this mean that the whole industry is going to change? Because there was a moment where it felt like the movement would just sweep through and make radical changes everywhere. But were there um, any of you in there whom he had made approaches to or done anything appropriate with? No one ever told me. Uh, if, if, if anyone had no one ever shared that with me. And that was kind of another thing. We would have these town halls internal where all the company would get together. We had like women's only town halls where everyone was checking in on each other. Really, I think the focus for all of us who decided to stay was how do we save people's jobs? How do we get rid of this guy? How do we make sure that he can't make another dime from the company? And that was like... It was filing a very, very specific like form of Chapter 11 because he owned so much of the assets and his personal finances were so like latched in to the infrastructure of the company itself. And it, it, it was just really about shutting him down, I think, was everyone's focus. So, so you basically go from working for who was considered God in the business to the worst dirtiest scoundrel ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think to be fair, people hated him well before this. I think I think a lot of people in the industry experienced a lot of Schadenfreude um, and you know relished in his takedown. He was not a well liked person. Yeah. And the ironic thing here, he had these, he cast these great actresses and he had these great movies and pretended he's so conscious, right? And he was just the opposite. Well, that, isn't that kind of, uh, looking back on it, doesn't that make a lot of sense? Because I remember like working on great social impact oriented films. I remember working on The Imitation Game and, you know, getting, um, you know, Alan Turing posthumously recognized getting a posthumous apology for the way the British government treated him. Treated him. Um, I remember working on like The Hunting Ground and that's a, you know, a documentary on a campus sexual assault. So we would work on these really socially conscious projects and hire really great diverse talent. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that was almost like a smoke screen. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. God. Well, yeah. That, that, that brings me into then. So how did you segue out of the entertainment industry and working in social impact? Because that was that where you got your idea for it or your? I mean, to a degree, yeah, because I saw the way because that company was responsible for some really, truly amazing American storytelling, like bar none. Um, and I saw the way that storytelling could impact people's perspective on on different issues and how it could render otherwise really complicated, really thorny, really hard to navigate ideas and, and take the abstract and make it something that you could connect with emotionally. And, you know, through that emotional connection, what was missing was like a specific call to action where here, oh, you care about this. Here's what you can do. 
here's something tangible. Here's, here, here's a partnership that we can, you know, structure. Here's like something, here's where we pour in our, our, our money into actually implementing a solution. So from 2024, going into 25 and going through the bankruptcy, I'd been doing stuff on the side that was very social impact oriented. I'm a writer. I was looking at all these different things. I had done some government affairs kind of lobbying type work on behalf of creators' rights. So I saw all of these different really complementary things and ideas, and I wanted to put them together in a way that made sense. So after we got through the bankruptcy and the like the M&A and the turnaround and selling the assets to Lantern and then from Lantern to Gary Barber coming on as a partner, I was trying to figure out what my next step was going to be because I was happy to, to stick around long enough to see everyone kind of land safely in terms of my coworkers, the people I had, I had really essentially grown up around. I was happy to see things end well for everybody or as well as they could. But by that point, I'd been doing music for a little over 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Um, Most people are like 40 like, when they have that career. Right? Yeah. <laughs> by, by, by 27, I was 10 years deep into a career that had only happened by accident. And it wasn't the only thing I wanted to do with my life. I, I, I always knew that. Um, and I had been trying to figure out what... And, and what, wait, you were director of film and television of music. Yeah, right? and I was basically, by the time I was at Spyglass, I was the acting, you know, head of music. Because at, at that point, there was no one else. <laughs> it was like, there was nobody else. Um, so I, I um, you know, when I left Spyglass in January of 2020, it was very abrupt I think it was like right, like right smack dab in the middle of Grammy week. Mm-hmm. And the weekend after, or the week after Grammy week, I sent an email to kind of like my top contacts in the industry. And I was like, hey, I'm not doing music anymore per se. I'm doing social impact. Here's my company. Here's my new contact information. And that was it. And from that one email, I had booked out meetings through the month of April wow. to talk about ways I could get involved in different social impact or philanthropic or corporate social responsibility sort of things. But then, of course, what happened in uh, February, March, and then mid-March, the pandemic and the shutdown of L.A. So you started your company right right before the Right pandemic. before the start wow. of the global pandemic. Like right uh-huh. before 2020 became 2020. You know what I mean? So my timing is impeccable. I truly have the best timing in the world. <laughs> But it actually worked out really well because 2020 became such an inflection point year in American society. All these questions I had had philosophically about where does culture intersect with causes? Where does it intersect with capital? Where does it, what is the intersection of all these different things? Other people were having this conversation now too. Suddenly. Exactly. I mean, people I think people were thinking about it. So, so good timing, and I think certainly the way of the future. You know, the way we all have to look at the future. Yeah, and so people would come to me in that same tone, in that same vein. People would come to me then and be like, "Sienna, remember all those things you used to say about the world and society and all this stuff?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I do remember all those things we used to talk about, but now you have to pay me for it." Um, so my role, my company and my work in social impact has kind of rapidly evolved since January 2020 into being a social enterprise consultancy. I'm like the McKinsey or Deloitte of social impact, or at least that's the long-term plan. So I work with brands and I work with businesses and I work with nonprofits, um, about maximizing their triple bottom line, maximizing their ability to make a difference, how you scale that, how you measure it. What I've discovered is that, you know, social impact is often used as just like a marketing term, but it's not. It's a it's a tangible, measurable thing. It's your you know, the net positive change that you can render in the world. And it is a very much something that you can you can systematize it. It's a matter of processes. It's a matter of really measuring, okay, if you're a, a nonprofit that works with the homeless, what is the scope of homelessness in your area? How many people are impacted? How many people are invisibleized, like invisible homeless? What entities are already out there in the landscape doing work similar to what you're doing, who you could partner with? Who can amplify your message? All these different things. Like I, this is the stuff I really, you know, it took me time to find it, but I found work that 
makes me excited every single day and is deeply fulfilling. And I wouldn't have this work that I do now if it weren't for my background in entertainment and working in music and all of the wonderful people I got to meet doing that work. Yeah. So when you when you take on an organization or a company, like what is the basic strategy? How do you give them impact? Do you have um, a, a short winning strategy to it? It's not a short. I think I think the thing that people have to realize is that like doing good is not like a one off thing that you can then post about on social media and feel like you've done your part. It's a it's a long haul. Right. Um, because we're, we're what I really want to look at is the way that organizations work or don't work and the consequences of those organizations and the way they function on society and on the world. Um, because there's really no problem that we deal with, whether it's racism or, you know, misogyny and abuse or, you know, climate change or any sort of ecological disaster. Like all these problems are man-made problems, which means there's a man-made solution for all the problems that we deal with. It's just a question of identifying the correct stakeholders, the people in leverage, uh, the people who benefit from the status quo, because those are usually the people that are your adversary to making real change, um, and then figuring out a game plan from there. And I think probably because of my background at the Weinstein Company of seeing how an organization can be bent towards doing really serious harm and how it obfuscates that harm and how do you make something good out of that? Um, that is that you know has become my enduring concern and interest now at this point in my life. The, I mean that that's why you're such an awesome person. <laughs> oh, no. well, it's like even even this podcast, I mean, right? That, like, that kind really of also meta. sums up why is social change so important to you. I mean, I guess that 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 question is like that's that's at the core of who you are, of caring and wanting to make the world better. Absolutely, it's something we all are all equal stakeholders, I think, in our, in our shared success as a, as a species. Um, and these, these issues that we're dealing with have monumental global consequences. And if we don't work together and if we don't treat it with the urgency it deserves, you know, we are all going to suffer and die. It's, it's really that dire. Like, look at climate change and the situation that we're in. It's that dire. Look at, um, you know, the, the murder of George Floyd and, and the global protests that was sparked off in response, right? You had like 330 some days of protest to get one guilty conviction, right? For, for what was clearly a murder. So the, the, the stakes are so high that for me, I can't imagine doing anything else with my life at this point. And I'm happy enough to have found, figured that all out at a young age, which means I've got hopefully knock on wood, many, many more years to do this work. And I'll return to the point I was trying to make earlier. This podcast and working with you as your producer has been a part of that new chapter because I'm really enamored with the work that you're doing to elevate women's voices and to really drive home the importance of women banding together and having a certain class consciousness and class solidarity with each other. Because if there's one thing I've seen in my experience, and I've had pretty insider experience on these things, is that men go really hard for other men. Men, men have a lot of solidarity with each other. Even if a man is not doing the things he ought not to be doing, he's still going into a Twitter, like some woman's Twitter mentions and saying, well, not all men. You know what I mean? Still minimizing, still shutting conversation down. Women need to really start organizing with each other and talking to each other about their shared experiences and about misogyny and sexism and patriarchy and all these different things that aren't fun to talk about, but are really vital and necessary. And that's what I've seen your show do. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Sana. Well, I'm so thrilled to be working with you on this. The thing, we have all been told to not speak up and to silence our voices. And we have been pitted against each other and ranked mm. and rated. I think mm. women have come to realize that creating this huge sisterhood of support is the, is the best thing in the world and the only way forward. Yeah, I think the more that we talk about these issues and the more that we work on meaningfully addressing the problems that we face as a society, 
you know, the more we're going to develop our shared language for talking about this stuff, right? It'll, it gets easier the, the more that we do it, even if the conversations are uncomfortable or, or difficult or, you know, a little bit scary to have. But as someone who existed in the eye of the storm of Me Too, I will say, you know, I'm not satisfied with whatever amount of change the movement was able to achieve. Yeah, no, like, there's a long people will say, like, way oh, to go. Me Too went too far. It did not. It not did not. And I still hear the same all. stories. So clearly, so clearly nothing has meaningfully changed to the degree where women are safe. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> like our, you know what I mean? Where like rampant sexual abuse um, has a consequence to the degree that it, it doesn't happen at all. And, we, and, the, and the structures that enable that abuse have not been dismantled. And I think, you know, no, look, think- at, look at the situation with Cuomo and the board of Time's Up having to resign in a certain amount of disgrace. Look at, look at the collusion that happens behind the scenes. And that sort of self-dealing, I saw a lot of when I was at the Weinstein Company. I won't name names, but I saw a lot of that same mechanism at work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no. So um, let's talk a little bit about feminism. What? Oh, yeah. Is- <laughs> As if we haven't been already. Right, right, right. But what is your biggest concern for young women today? I think my biggest concern, and I don't know if I would frame it as a concern, it's it's more of, and maybe this sounds a, a, like a little uh, negative, but I think about the global protest that happened last summer, and how important and impactful that was. And you know, I'm a, you know I'm a black woman, like I'm an African American. It was so meaningful to me as an African American to see people take to the streets and yeah. go hard for black lives. Yeah. About time. Mm -hmm. But then I look at what happens in Texas and I look at the Supreme Court's midnight dismantling, essentially, of Roe v. Wade. And I'm not seeing people come at that issue with the same amount of energy. And I wonder if maybe we just are not in the habit of going hard for women the way that we go hard for other minorities because we don't treat women as as a, a protected class or as, you know, an oppressed class, even though we are. Um, so I'm like, I would love to see a bunch of companies pull out of Texas the way they were like pulling out of Georgia at one point. They were doing all these different punitive things. But I'm not seeing that same level of urgency. I think some things have to do with the times we're in. P- people are, right now, I think, burnt out too. After COVID, yeah. they're depressed. I, I don't know. There's a lot of issues that are coming up right now that people... Oh, yeah. but that's, they're, a, they're, that's another you know, thing I notice in my work is, is burnout, right? Because Same thing with idea. Bill Cosby. What? what? He's, he's yeah. walking free? <laughs> Just well, we quietly should, let we go. We should be on the street like one... and protest that. We should be, yeah. you know? So there's yeah. a lot of things that are just slipping by right now. I think there's some kind of social fatigue and, and um, social fatigue depression going on. Yeah, I think that is definitely a factor. Collective depression. Yeah. Moreover, I would say that in our society, we trivialize violence against women in our culture. Absolutely. We promote it. Like we we talked on here about the porn industry. We we promote it. We we romanticize it. We sexualize it. Um, Yeah. Again, it's, it's one of those things where I think back to my work in entertainment and some of the conversations I would see behind the scenes, again amongst people with a lot of power to shape cultural narratives and to shape people's self-image through media. And their attitudes absolutely infect the media that then gets produced and what gets greenlit and what gets made. Um, There are not enough women behind the scenes in true like stakeholder leverage holding positions um, where they can say like, hey, no, we don't need this. That you're giving us. This yeah. is not what we need no. on screen. 85% of the movies are still written and produced by men. And, and written shows. and directed. And it shows. Even I was sitting with my son and going through. He wrote a list of all his favorite TV shows and favorite characters. Mm. Every single one is a man. Because every damn you know, show that we've been watching over the last 15 years that I've been watching with him. It, it's a male lead. It's a man's story. It's a man's point of view. I mean, which is not in and of itself a bad thing. No, but, but what we there's do no see equality is, in it. Yeah, but beyond that, what we don't really see enough of is women as fully realized, fully fleshed out human beings 
No, they're and there for the man, and they're 15, 20 years younger always than the guy, and then they're objectified. Yeah. So we see that. We see, like, the sexualization of young girls. We see, you know, the commodification of women's bodies. We see it's all very dehumanizing. And I think for, you know, young women especially, it's so tiring to have to litigate your own humanity to a skeptical audience who is only engaging you in bad faith. Exactly, yeah. And that's an issue. Um, so there are these bigger issues that need to be addressed. And I think there is some signaling that people are more hip to this problem, that people are, you know, waking up a little bit. But I think what happens in Texas and, you know, what is continuing to happen is that, you know, women's rights in this country have been on a backslide. You know, they have been. I don't think, you know, you know, for context, Although America is moving up uh, on the world economics uh, gender gap index. I think they moved up in the last year, like 10 Which spots. Uh, World Economic Forum's gender gap index, it moved up like 10, 12 points. Which country moved up? I didn't hear. America. Oh, really? Yeah. So there is there is stuff happening, there's some, but, but there's, there's some... so many great things moving forward and then it's moving backward at the same time. So it's yeah. confusing. And I think what needs to happen is people need to treat it with the urgency that it deserves. Because I remember we had tried to have this conversation a couple of weeks ago, and I pointed out to you how little coverage I had seen paid to the looming danger to Roe v. Wade, right? And now, and I was right. A few weeks later, inevitably, Texas, inevitably, what happened at the court? And now people are shocked. But no, women had been agitating about this for a while. <laughs> but people didn't want to listen because they seemed, they just dismissed them as being hysterical which is still an issue when women advocate for themselves or for their rights or for their concerns, they are too easily dismissed as being over emotional or irrational. And then, you know, the truth bears out that they were right all along, but then it's too late. Yeah, no, it's, it's so disturbing. It's, uh, it's like modern day honor violence almost. Yeah. One, another thing when I think about the lack of urgency when it comes to the crisis of women's rights in this country is that so many problems that we dismiss as be, and this is a very imperialist thing, we dismiss as being over there problems, like third world, sort of like not over, not here. It couldn't happen here. They happen here. Um, it was interesting to see uh, conservatives, especially, wring their hands and say, oh, look at how we've abandoned the women of Afghanistan to a patriarchal nightmare, and then turn around and applaud everything that's happening in Texas, which essentially deputizes random citizens into persecuting women oh, no, for exercising it's, control it's, it's over their own bodies. Show, yeah. And it gives them, you know, legal bounty, right? It's oh, bounty it's, hunting. It, it's insanity. It's insanity, but it's not. But here's the thing. It's like, you know, child marriage, it happens here. I think North Carolina, I can't remember which state is like the top state for child marriage in this country, but there, that there is such a thing is, is obscene. Yeah. The majority of states, I think it's like 50, I, I don't have the exact number, but they yeah, allow child I, it's, marriage. It's, it's depressing, right? Like you pull up, okay, child marriage statistics in the United States and you're shocked at the numbers that you see because a lot of states don't have, you know, there is no federal minimum consent. It's, it's, it's controlled by the states and some of the states, especially when they'll have like parental consent waivers, go very, very young. We're talking like 12, 13. Uh, yeah. Right? And that's, that is... This, this idea that we have that women have equal status in the society, when you look at the, the laws and you look at the reality of the statistics of, of what women deal with in this country, it's not true. No. All the problems that happen over there, they happen here too. It's just that we don't want to acknowledge that they do. And so the problems become, you know, to a certain degree, invisibilized. Yeah, yeah. And people think that feminism really has done its work and in this country and that we're done now and that, you know, ladies can vote. We did it all. Everything's everything's fine. We never passed an equal right amendment. Well, for me, this, uh, um, I think, somewhat misinformed millennial feminism on Instagram, which is, I think is disinformed form of feminism. Yeah. Well, I think I think to your point, it's what is the feminist movement about? If you asked a young person, what, what is feminism? Who, who are the major figures in feminism? Like, what, what happens to women, and it ha seems to happen very often, is that wisdom handed down from older generations of men to younger men, that's like passing down history and wisdom. When it's older women, 
it's like old wives tales. It's, it's, it's not treated with the same respect. And there is more, I see a disconnect between young women and older women. We are not having this handover of knowledge and wisdom and experience and insight, right? And valuable tool. Like I see men receiving wisdom all the time from older men, but you don't have that same culture of mentorship um, because there's still this idea that women are catty, women undermine each other, women stab each other in the back, and women don't really trust other women. And it shows. That's a depressing yeah, sentiment. I'm like, I'm like... <laughs> but on the other hand, on the other hand, we have so many more tools than we ever had before to educate and to consciousness raise and to organize. And, you know, there are plenty of women out there who are doing amazing work, fabulous work. And it's intersectional, too. It's across you know, race and age and sexuality. It's, it's people, I think, the more that we get together again and talk about the issues that we have or things that make us uncomfortable or things that make us unhappy, the more we're going to be able to come to a solution. And I think for me, that the best, strongest, most edifying trick that I use is when I look at the world and I'm unhappy with what I see, the first question I ask myself is, well, who benefits? Like, who benefits from what I'm seeing right now that I think is awful, but who somebody is getting the benefit out of this? And once you can start doing that, you can start identifying the people who their status quo is in op- is total opposition to your humanity or your well-being. Then you can, st- that's an organizing principle. Once you start to identify the players and the landscape, you can start to put together a strategy. You can start to think, okay, well, if that's the person who's benefiting from the status quo, who else in this landscape is not benefiting? Who can I, where are my allies? And then you start building coalition. Then you start building fellowship. And then all of a sudden you've got recourse to address these issues. And that's, I think the biggest thing about me too, is like enough people spoke out, you know, enough women were talking that it hit the critical mass of, okay, now something's got to change. And that's an important tool. So what is common sense feminism? What is that to you? Uh, I think to me, common sense feminism is your ability as a woman to organize with other women, to understand the problems that you face as women, where they come from, what material, structural, infrastructural impediments exist that put barriers around women and their ability to be full human beings and participate in society as full human beings and equal human beings? And then what is the game plan for dismantling these structures? Feminism is not uh, fun. It's not. I wouldn't call being a civil rights activist fun. I wouldn't call being a gay rights activist fun. Being a feminist is not meant to be fun or appealing or flirty. It's, it's, it was academic originally, And it's about organizing. It's about grassroots organizing. It's about really understanding and critically analyzing patriarchy and misogyny and sexism and the mechanisms by which they operate on our lives and then taking them on. It's just, it's really simple. And I think my, my, my last point is, you know, we're talking about literally the majority, the bulk of the human population, a full half and change, right? So billions of human lives that are not permitted to flourish. Billions of human lives whose potential is cut short, right? Billions of human lives that could be doing so much more with their time and their energy and their talent and their brilliance if they did not have to put up with. 40% of the world's women are living without basic human rights. Until we have all their talents, ideas, yeah. and input in the, the world, we're never going to live we're in a balanced world. We're never going to succeed as a species. No. We, we literally no. have cut off half of ourselves. It's, think how insane that is. The minds of 40% of the, the world's women. Like, yeah. It's such an enormous scale that it almost becomes paralyzing to think about the scale of the problem. You, you actually, you, I, I find myself getting depressed, but it, it's no, really, but truly it's, it's, insane. But that's why we, we, we all have to create change. We all have to, yeah. we, no wonder the world seems in chaos and on steroids right now. Well, it's like insanity. half of your population can't have any a, input. <laughs> can't play a real role in, in, in taking these things on. Remember, I said all the problems that we deal with are man-made problems, and largely they are. Uh, well, absolutely. We're living in a patriarchy run amok. 
I mean, and that's not to blame men. That's just a fact because we, ha- mm. we haven't been in power. Women haven't been in power. And yeah. I think the world is meant to be equal. We're meant to share equally because we are so different and only that will create the balance we need. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like the, I feel like humanity has been hobbled by misogyny. Absolutely. As a woman of color, I see it intersectionally as well because the sort of misogynoir Mm-hmm. And this, the particular misogyny that black women experience is very different than the misogyny that white women experience. So it's one of those things where it's like, are you really going and to... And how is it different? Tell, can you share? Oh, that? my God. Yeah. <laughs> we have, we'd have so much to uh, unpack there. I think, you know, I think a good thing to like, I'm on the board of a, a nonprofit that looks at the challenges that women and girls face, the collective identity. And we look at issues of adultification bias. How often are black girls physically disciplined as compared to white girls? How often are they sexually assaulted compared to white girls? The, the, the stats are Domestic alarming. violence, much worse. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the idea that black women tend to be sexualized at a much younger age. And that is part of the legacy of the colonial slave trade. Right. And there are all these so all these different nuanced factors that we need to take on. But for me, what's really encouraging is that I'm now in a position where this is what I do every day. I get to find, and I find so many wonderful people. Like, I, I don't think I've ever met so many women who are doing amazing work as I do nowadays in my new phase in my life. Like, you're one of those women, but I, I meet so many and across so many different diverse experiences and backgrounds, and everyone's coming with their own insight and perspective, but still that same shared sense of urgency and the belief in our collective action leading to our collective success, because it's really not an individual thing. No, we can only do it together. Yeah. Topic-based, not tribal. Yeah. So who's your biggest role model and inspiration or role models? I think my parents and largely my mom, because, um, you know, I wouldn't be I know I wouldn't be as capable as a human being if it weren't for the way that they brought me up. Um, and they both, in their own ways, really taught me to rely on and trust in my own capacities and my own capability and my own competence. Like, uh, I think that was the big difference for me. It was like, I always knew I was competent. I always knew I was capable. I always knew I was smart. I always knew I was able to solve problems. I always knew I was able to advocate for myself. I always felt that I could advocate for myself which meant that it was, I, you know, I've, it's been very, very difficult for people to like walk over me because I just don't, I don't suffer that. And that- That's how you got them. away with Harvey Weinstein. Oh God, <laughs> I, like, don't I, even know. I don't even know. I don't even know what the situation was there. <laughs> I think um, I was taller than him. First of all, that might've been a factor. I like don't even want to know. The, the, the moment I really know what was in his mind is the day that I- go insane because I do not want to know what it was in his mind ever. <laughs> oh my God. Exactly. Oh my God. So if you could make three huge shifts in the world today, what would it be? I think I would want an Uno reverse on <laughs> patriarchy or at least some sort of like true legal and total social equity for women and girls the world over. Um, I would want a climate reset to give us a little bit more time because the, the, the climate that we're in, the year-round fire season on the West Coast and horrible floods and storms on the East, just ain't it. I, am, I, I would like to change that. Um, and I would honestly, I think for the last one, I would want every person in the world to feel the hurt that they render onto other people. If people could really experience what they do to others, they wouldn't do it as if they were doing it to themselves. I think you just solved the world right there. I, if I, <laughs> well, first we need to find a genie who can grant those three wishes and then we can celebrate. Seriously, those three changes. And I think we would have a really wonderful world and look, look ahead in a much more positive way right now. Yeah. Well, the best we can do is, is roll up our sleeves and work a little bit every day. And I think eventually we're going to cross that, that event horizon, right? And into something different than whatever came before. It's, some, it's almost beyond imagination. But if we can start through dialogue and through discourse and through just plain old grassroots community work and community organizing, 
start to envision a better future for women and girls, if we can do that successfully for ourselves, then we'll actually address a lot of the problems that we face more broadly as a society. Yeah. Well, Sienna, thank you so much that it took me a few months to convince you to let me talk to you on the podcast. But we did it. You did it. We did did it. it. (laughs) And I'm so excited for women to hear your wisdom. And I, I am just in awe of you. And I can't wait to follow you with where your company is going to take you because I know it's going to be big. I I appreciate that, Jill. It's a pleasure to work with you. It was very fun to be on your show today as a guest. Yeah, everyone tune into the new feminist podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Every other Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jill. Take care. Take care. If you like this episode, make sure to share it with your friends. For info and links on our guests, go to our website, thenewfeminist.net, and make sure to subscribe. We always love to hear from you. If you have someone you think we should speak to, let us know. And make sure to follow on Instagram at thenewfeministofficial. We'll be back in two weeks with a new podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Jill Sorensen. Thanks for listening. Our producers are Sienna Jackson and Jill Sorensen. Our executive producers are Mark Netter and Peter Rafelson. Our editor is Lucy Baker Swinburne. Original music by Richard Baskin. Until our next episode, thank you for listening. You've been listening to The New Feminist, brought to you by Electrocast Media. Electric cast.